today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It's been fascinating watching the president because, of course, it, it's all been talking about NAFTA and how this is the greatest deal ever done. Uh, but then when a reporter starts to ask him about uh, the Kavanaugh investigation, he tried to get the mic away from the reporter and get someone to ask a question on trade. So now that press conference is has moved from the NAFTA negotiations uh, onto the Kavanaugh investigation. So uh, we're keeping an eye on uh, whether the prime minister will start his uh, wow the, the president is talking or whether he's going to wait until uh, after this little side show's over before uh, he gets to his uh, press conference. That being said, uh, we are keeping an eye on it. All right, let's bring in John Higginbotham, Senior Distinguished Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. And John, of course, a Senior Canadian Diplomat, Post in Washington, Hong Kong and Beijing, Assistant Deputy Minister in Transport Canada, Global Affairs Canada, and the Canada School of Public Service and part of the original negotiating team for the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. John, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good, thanks. Delighted to be here. So is there that much difference between the old agreement you were working on and this new one? Oh, I think I think times have changed a great deal. Uh, I think this uh, it was a unique deal because we were reacting to this unique uh, kind of hurricane of President Trump. Uh, this is not a, a good deal for Canada. I wouldn't say it's a bad deal. Uh, it's But that choice that you, it's better to have a deal rather than no deal is to me the, the obvious conclusion of where this has come out. Trump will treat it as a triumph for pushing his neighbors around, for bullying his neighbors. Canada did as well as it could with a kind of a, a weak hand and under threat. Uh, but we have made some important concessions, and uh, we have uh, also gained certain things, such as, in fact, uh, we will benefit from the bullying that the Mexican government got over uh, automobile content. Anyway, it's um, it's uh, like waking up after a car accident and discovering that you're you may have a broken leg, but you're still alive. Hmm. Are you surprised at a deal now at this time? Obviously, there was lots of bluster going back and forth as, the, as to whether it was going to happen or not. Was there any advantage to Canada signing anything sooner? Well, maybe sooner. It's possible. Uh, I won't go into the full story of the negotiations, but uh, which I don't know. Uh, but uh, I think uh, Trump put all this pressure on. Uh, the risk of them doing a, a deal only with Mexico, I think, was real. Uh, and uh, the other alternative was throwing ourselves into the chaos of dealing with Congress, which will, in its way, is just as just as difficult as dealing with uh, uh, President Trump. How much did you, you said it's an OK deal? It's not a great deal. Uh, how much did we have to give up specifically with dairy? Well, I, I see that it's not just a percentage of the market, but it's also this, this skim milk product that is, was very contentious and is an important trade, tradable good. That's important. It's also in contrast to the declarations that the, the government made. It did, did nothing to prepare people for uh, this very unequal and, and difficult negotiation with the Americans. 
and people have simply got to understand that con- some concessions had to be made, be made, and some things were achieved. And at least we have a, a, a deal. It's a long, long way from our attempt to have a completely modernized, progressive uh, NAFTA. Are you surprised that uh, that we did deal with NAFTA? Many many thought that this this sooner or later would, would there'd have to be some movement on it. Are you surprised that the prime minister touched that after saying that he wouldn't? Uh, well, no, I mean I, I I think they simply with the timelines that had been set by President Trump and and the Mexicans. I think we had little alternative but to go ahead with the go ahead with uh, with the, the elements of a deal now. So what does Trump boost as a win? What does Trudeau boast as a win? Well, um, Trudeau will say that we got uh, dispute settlement. Whether that's uh, an empty vessel or not, we will see. But the very fact that there was no undertaking to remove these really substantial tariffs on aluminum and steel or apply them through a a dispute settlement mechanism or recognize the kind of rule of trade law is an indication that it probably uh, didn't matter that much. So that's something we got. Uh, We we got a couple of other things where it was not clear that we were going to fight that hard because, I mean, the the importing of goods from uh, from the United States, the de minimis argument is one where I think that is basically you can sell that to consumers. It's not bad, but where we had to give something up was on uh, uh, was on uh, uh, dairy, of course, uh, probably some other agricultural issues. Uh, I've really not read the provisions on intellectual property and so forth, so there may well be some good stuff in there. But again, it's been done under under duress, and uh, it's uh, a unique, a uniquely difficult moment in Canadian trade policy. Uh, it seemed just even 24, 48 hours ago, the two sides were quite far apart. Lots of rhetoric back and forth. Are you surprised that, boom, like that, it's done? No, I, I, I'm not, really. I think uh, they just made the political decision that they had to go ahead with it. They know that uh, the government would be criticized on dairy because it's made such uh, strong claims for not putting it on the table uh, earlier on. Uh, there'll be other detailed uh, criticisms of the deal, but the but the large fact is that we have a trilateral deal, uh, and uh, it should provide future hust- future stability to to the extent you can get it out of President Trump. Bear in mind that we are a sideshow to some of the very serious trade trade uh, disputes he's uh, he's carrying out for example with china for example uh and i think he probably needs some things to put in the store window when he goes to uh, the public in the congressional relations in the congressional elections coming up in a month or so so he w- will rightly claim that uh, he's uh he, he, the words nafta do not cross his lips hmm. but he will claim that uh, this is uh uh, this is the success of his policies. John, we only got about a minute left. Where does this leave steel and aluminum tariffs? Uh, well, they, they've, the U.S. Uh, 
FTR has said that it's on a separate track, which I really can't understand what that means, particularly when it's been it's been uh, carried out under this national security provision, which is completely bogus uh, from a Canadian point of view. It just shows that uh, we're going to continue to have tensions with him, uh, frankly, as long as he's president. All right, John Higginbotham has been with us, Senior Distinguished Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. John, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked a lot, and it seems forever, about the ramifications and legalization of recreational cannabis, how it's going to be distributed, taxed, this, that, and the other. And many have said, are we doing enough on health? Why don't you talk more about the health implications uh, of this drug? What's going to happen 20 years from now? Are we going to be looking at this the same way we view tobacco consumption now? Uh, Some health experts are expressing concerns over everyday Canadians' health due to secondhand smoke. Also, uh, of course, just more availability to recreational cannabis. Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking and Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Long time no see. Exactly. It seems like you're a <laughs> weekly guest now. Uh, that maybe maybe after October 17th, that'll die down a bit. Who knows? <laughs> um, have we done enough? And I'm getting email from people saying, you know, we're talking about this a lot, but we're not really talking about, and we've talked about benefits, you know, from a health mm-hmm. perspective. But what about risks? Are we spending enough time talking about the risks of this drug? Uh, well, I'd say that we're not spending enough time talking about What's happening is we're talking about risks in an abstract way because the research, there's not as much research uh, done in the same way, say, as you know, decades of research on tobacco. So what happens is we end up with um, discussions about risk that are often shaded by our by prejudice, not prejudice, I say preconception, um, or shaded by um, kind of what, d- depending on someone's perspective on cannabis. Uh, the, what they're expecting to find. And we even find this at some of the highest levels of research where a lot of the sort of position papers that were um, released before the cannabis um, task force did its work and during that would often kind of, depending on their political perspective on it, and I don't mean party political, but the politics of you know sort of drug legalization, it would break one way or another. So they would say things like, this may cause um, such and such a, um, a condition, when really that also means it may not, and the, and the evidence doesn't sh- show conclusively one way or another. So the problem is a lot of the time we're dealing with limited evidence um, that then falls back into people deciding based upon their own expectations or fears or um, biases. Why has there, why is there not more research on this drug? And should that have been done prior to legalization, especially when you think from, even for medicinal purposes? Yeah, well, um, some of the stuff I've read suggests that one of the reasons there hasn't been as much research is because a lot of the research, it's, it's hard to do sort of longitudinal research on a group that maybe not be self-identifying. Um, I mean, with, can, with with tobacco, it's easier to, to follow people who smoke and, uh, you know, to recruit people and stuff like that, because 
there were a lot of smokers back when they were studying this, and and there wasn't such a um, well, there wasn't a prohibition, and there also wasn't sort of a, uh, other issues around researching on that topic themselves. So the 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 biggest barrier to research on tobacco was the tobacco industry itself not wanting certain types of research to be released, right? Um, but with cannabis, because it was illegal, there was a time when it was just not allowed in some jurisdictions to right. research on cannabis at all. So uh, it's harder to get longer term, large group studies on effects. And um, there's also the issue of the different ways people consume it. So tobacco I mean, you know, it can be smoked, chewed, other things, but normally they would look at smoking and look at the impacts of smoking, um, following people for for decades, you know, um, things like that. With cannabis, it's harder to find that large group, and people consume it in different ways as well. So, so in other words, even, it's it's hard to get research until it's legalized. Um, well, it would be a lot easier if it were legal, right? right? Because then it would there would be no problem with people identifying uh, themselves as a cannabis user. Um, but also, there would be an issue with. Um, I mean, when we go into sort of ethics research, ethics processes where a researcher needs to go through a um, a, a board at their university or the, or their hospital or wherever they're working, there are questions about the ethics of someone identifying that they're doing something that is illegal, for example. Now, we've had, um, uh, de- uh, we've had medical, uh, medical marijuana in uh, Canada for, uh, what, almost two decades. So there would be more of that uh, type of cohort research. But the problem is medical marijuana is being used by people who haven't identified medical issues. So there's a complicating medical factor in there already, right? There could already be an underlying illness, whether it's anything from cancers to uh, anxieties and things like that. So phys- like very easy to, to identify physical illness like a cancer to other things like anxiety, weren't, which aren't necessarily easy to sort of pinpoint a physical thing, right? So it, it does complicate things in a lot of ways. It seems that we spent years trying to teach people to stop smoking, yeah. and now all of a sudden, hey, but this is okay. And I know there's many ways to consume it, but that being said, that seems to be the most popular still at this point. Um, 20 years from now, will we look back at this and be viewing this the same way we're viewing tobacco now? It's really hard to predict. Um, it does depend on sort of the developments within the industry. Uh, some people say that um, the way cannabis is smoked, you know, some of the, the there there can be some um, problematic substances in cannabis smoke, um, but and the way it's smoked, so people who smoke it tend to hold it in longer, I guess, to get more of the the um, the the effects of cannabis into their system. Um, so that you know they they. Some people say they, they smoke less um, less than a regular tobacco smoker would um, smoke, but they tend to hold it longer, so there could be an amplification of the effect. So, yeah, it could be that in 20 years, uh, people say, why did we allow this? Uh, but it could also be that in 20 years, people say, what was the big concern, right? Um, and and, and it, what, what also happens when you legalize something is you create... Um, th- Part of the the whole process of what the liberals said about legalizing it is putting it into this public health framework and also making sure that a safer product is in the hands of the consumer. So it may be that the next step will be making sure there are 
um, well, I know that they're already doing this, making sure there are different ways of testing what's in the cannabis and maybe filtering or whatever. I don't know how it's going to go. Or if there might be a movement to more edibles that have less of the problematic carcinogens and things like that so that we end up with more people eating gummies and cookies and brownies and or oils and things like that than, than smoking, right? We've certainly seen the lawsuits that have come out of the tobacco industry. Yeah. Do you think uh, cannabis companies, the canopies of the world, whatever, uh, do you think they're worried about lawsuits down the road because the research hasn't been done prior to legalization? Um, I wouldn't want to try to get into their minds. I know that one of the things that they've been very uh, concerned about is the, the amount of regulation that has been, that has been. I can't see, I don't want to say imposed. The word would probably be the fra- the regulatory framework that has been put around a medical marijuana that has constantly required um, the m- medical uh, me- marijuana um, industry to change or to tweak or to strengthen its its regulations. Uh, so they they have always or they present themselves as look we're legit we're doing this in the way along the health healthy principles that the government agencies have created. So I don't know if they would be concerned about that. Um, we have to remember that one of the main concerns about the tobacco industry was that they knew uh, uh, the, the charges, what they knew the risks, but they um, minimized them or that they knew the risks, but the things that they were putting in the tobacco to intensify the addictive properties or to um, not not make more carcinogens, but to sort of gloss over the the, the various advertising and, and studies they did to gloss over the negative uh, research was the problem. It wasn't just the, that they were selling tobacco. It was the way they were yeah. developing it, refining it, marketing it, and so on, which was the issue. And they were conscious of that. And that's that's the yeah. charge, and that's, I think, what the agreement, uh, you know, the general held agreement now. Um, and the, so if the cannabis industry suddenly decides to say, hey, you know what happened to tobacco? Well, let's try that anyway. Then they yeah. should really be worried. Yeah. Um, but that's not, you know, the, generally... We've seen, so far at least, these companies that have grown out of a medical marijuana framework have been successful, even though they've had to deal with a lot of stringent regulations. So it may be that they look at the tobacco industry and go, we're not going that way. We're going to do this. I mean, we're going to profit from this, and we're going to um, continue to refine the product and, and offer a better product to our customers, et cetera, et cetera, but we're not going to do the sorts of things that... Um, that the tobacco industry has done. Then again, in 20 years, maybe that is a short-term memory loss, and, and we see other industries doing the same things. I mean, far be it for me to say that industries are always proceeding in an ethical and uh, hmm. legal way. Right? Why don't you think Big Pharma, although I guess they are now, some, mm-hmm. but why isn't Big Pharma more involved in this? Yeah, I really can't say. I would that, that my initial reaction would be because it's hard to patent. That uh, that was always that's always been the right. rumor is this isn't a synthetic yeah. drug. It, you can't yeah. patent a natural product. Is that mm-hmm. what it is? There's no money to be made from it from the, for yeah. them. I, I I honestly I don't know. I mean, I would suspect that there's partly that issue, partly the issue that if you're if you're creating a recreational substance, then what you're doing is you're veering away from the medical side of it and big pharma. You know, it's a pharm- pharmaceutical industries are interested in presenting themselves as dealing with medical issues. So, but even on um, the metal, even on the medicinal yeah. side, I mean, yeah, why not yeah. more? And then, yeah, I mean, what we see instead is not big pharma necessarily adopting 
cannabis as a product, although I'm sure there is some element of that, but more the medical marijuana companies becoming more like doing more of the sort of stuff that pharmaceutical companies do, like extracting um, um, what they consider to be the most effective elements of of the substance and refining it. I remember being at uh, an event with uh, one of the presidents of one of the cannabis medical marijuana companies, and I said to him, well, you know, uh, recreational marijuana is going to really screw you guys over. And he said, oh, no, no, we're, we're medical. I mean, we do this stuff, we refine it. It's, we're not just selling smokable pot, right? And I thought, okay, but <laughs> as soon as it's legal, a lot of the people who are going to you for that might just self-medicate. Right. Um, but he was making it, he was bending over backwards to present what he was doing as a me- in a medical and pharmaceutical framework. And so it, it's maybe instead of the big pharma looking at cannabis, um, it's it's we should look at it the other way around is in the cannabis industry looking more at big pharma and seeing what what um, was successful for them. Is there more money to be made patenting uh, patenting uh, opioids than there is cannabis? Um, if you can patent a substance, then you and you can show it to be effective. Then yes, I mean we may see that they get in on this business because um, it's cutting into the the patented painkillers that they have, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and other sorts of psychoactive uh, properties will also cut into some of the psycho psychopharmaceuticals that are out there. Um, so it may be that big pharma is. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I'm just speculating, but they could be saying, you know, let's keep our hands off of cannabis because if we go after it, it's going to legitimize it and then it's going to cut into our business. Yeah. But it's, and, and it's not going to ha- be as um, valuable to us as the patented stuff we have. I, I really don't know what's happening there. A lot of people are concerned about uh, consuming this, especially in Ontario now where uh, when the, under the wind government, it, I don't know, I think you could do it in your garden shed, but that was about it. <laughs> um, but now it seems anywhere it's, it's, it's mirroring uh, tobacco regulations. Mm-hmm. It, is is there a difference between secondhand uh, cannabis smoke and secondhand tobacco? I mean, is this the same thing? Should it be viewed the same? Um, apart from the smell, um, I don't think. Well, no, I, 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 I'm not sure. And again, the research isn't quite there. But from what I understand, the, the there's the secondhand uh, cannabis smoke doesn't seem to have been connected as much to health Ill, health conditions as secondhand tobacco smoke has been. Um, again, this could be because uh, in a because the, the amount of evidence isn't there. It could also be because it's just the, the carcinogens aren't there. Um, I think what we'll see more uh, people concerned with is not. I mean, they might equate it with health uh, conditions, but they'd probably be more concerned about getting high from being near it, um, and the smell, which is different than tobacco. And people, you see people in parks and stuff when there's someone smoking nearby, waving their hands in front of their face and stuff like that and sort of snarling at them. Um, so we might see more of that. So what, and I, I mentioned this last week, we might end up seeing the government having to um, back away from some of the liberal um, policies they have when you start to get a lot of blowback from people. Maybe we'll have non-smoking areas in parks and things like that. I don't know, maybe we already do. Is there any lessons we can learn from the tobacco industry and, and how we've changed our moods, our minds on that? Is there anything we can learn from that that will help us moving down this road? Do you mean as far as the way the industry operates or the way they've been regulated? All of it. Um, well, yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, we I, I couldn't imagine that cannabis, the 
the recreational cannabis industry is going to undertake the same kinds of um, sort of nefarious activities that right. tobacco was. But also there could be, you know, we do. And, there, and we, should, we should clarify yeah. that. that. Back in the day, uh, the whole idea was they were in, in laboratories trying to figure out something that would make you smoke more and yeah. want more and keep smoking smoke. Yeah. And that's, that, that's in lies where the, the lawsuits yeah. stem from. Yeah, it's not just saying that they're, they're generally evil people by any means. They were business people making a product and wanted people to consume it, right? Like, yeah. That's how the system works. But um, the issue came down to identifying uh, things that cause cancer or other illnesses and them just sort of taking a blind eye to it and, and continuing to make it more addictive. Um, but with Canada, it, it could be that we all, you know, I, I know the government is very, I mean, the federal government that oversees sort of the regulatory um, framework around the, the industry is very concerned about making sure that the, this product is um, sold and is, is um, I guess manufactured, grown, manufactured, and sold in a way that is as has as little negative health impact as possible. Um, so I think the entire industry has learned a lot from the t- the tobacco situation. Um, although there is also there there can be at times, um, mo- depending on who's doing the lobbying, a little bit more or less regulation or strictness in regulation. Right now, though, I think there's a hyper concern, except it seems around the Ontario government, a hyper concern about going too too fast with this process. Um, so the regulation is strict and will continue to be and has been for a long time. Talk to anyone in the medical marijuana business and they'll just roll their eyes about Health Canada constantly changing the rules and making them stricter, making them jump through more hoops and stuff like that. All right, we were talking last week about how this will affect, and we've talked many times, how it will mm-hmm. affect the alcohol industry, especially yeah. when it comes to taxation and some of the and some of the hoops that the alcohol industry has to jump through that perhaps uh, the marijuana industry won't have to jump through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it came out uh, in Toronto when the, the mayor of Toronto said, well, what about public drinking in parks? Uh, yeah. You allow people you allow people to smoke in parks and, and consume cannabis in parks, yet they can't go in and have a beer if they're having a picnic in a park and that sort of thing. Uh, it looks like the premier is now looking at that. Where where do we draw the line here? Is this is this going to give us a completely different Ontario in a couple of years? Um, it could. I mean, with as far as booze in in public spaces goes, we have been liberalizing for a while now. Yeah. I mean, you probably remember the times when there at an event there would be a beer tent. Yeah. you could not leave the tent, right? Yeah, and then they you have to stand it. in behind the snow fence. There, you couldn't come beyond <laughs> the snow fence. That's right. You probably had to face inward so no one can see you drinking. I don't know. That's that. right. But, with your yeah. back to the crowd. That's right. Yeah. Well, and and. and in all seriousness, when um, public drinking was legalized in, in 1934, they they had to keep their windows shuttered. Like, you could not be able to look in, although in some jurisdictions in other states and provinces, the rule was opposite, so people could look in to make sure nothing bad was going on. That's why everything was in a bag. Everybody was drinking out of a little bag. That, that too, yeah. Paper bag, it came in a paper bag, but you also had to shutter your windows, and there were, I've seen reports from inspectors saying, you know, they had their shutters tint, tilted so you could see in, and that was scandalous. Uh, but yeah, so we've liberalized. It might lead to dancing. <laughs> oh, that was completely forbidden. In the dining rooms, you could dance. There you go. There you go. But yeah, so we have liberalized. We do, do now have more site licenses and stuff. I heard someone on the radio. I can't remember what city they're from talking about, you know, why couldn't we have craft beer um, trucks coming to the park? And then if you have mm-hmm. an event, you don't have to 
um, get a license for your event, the craft beer truck would be licensed and they would be able to sell. And that is a great idea, right? So it could be that they're looking at this. Um, if it's a full wholesale, you, know, you can smoke anywhere, you can, you can smoke cannabis anywhere, you can smoke um, tobacco, it will make it difficult for the government to continue to justify restrictions in public consumption of alcohol. Um, and they, they'll have to make some interesting distinctions between alcohol and cannabis use. And, uh, and, I mean, there are some very um, clear distinctions in the way people behave when they smoke cannabis and drink alcohol often. Um, but it, it's going to require the government to do more than just make sort of blanket statements about, you know, looking out for, you know, we can all be adults when we do this and stuff like that, as they've been doing so far. So we talked, we talked, Dan, way back when, when they were allowing beer and wine in grocery stores. And I remember asking you, is it like going to be New Year's Eve the next day? Is it going to be Armageddon? What the hell's going to happen? And of course, you know, nothing did. That being said, and they've been, they've been talking about liberalizing alcohol laws in, in the province for, for decades, it seems. Will we now see more of that? Uh, Will we now see uh, private distribution within uh, the alcohol industry like we will with distribution of cannabis? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm no good at predicting, as you may know, but um, just elements of that seem to be coming in. There seems to be a recommendation, a strange recommendation, that the province um, privatize the LCBO. I'm not sure how private regulatory agencies work, but I think they may have been talking more about privatizing the distribution side of it. So, um, uh, And that would lead to possibly opening it up to other agencies to do importation and stuff uh, sort of more like what happens in Alberta than happens here. Um, So I think that it's actually a really interesting time because there's a certain degree of um, disruption in the, in the whole regulatory sales uh, side of alcohol, both with the new government we have and with the cannabis, um, the changes in cannabis laws um, or the legalization itself. And it will be interesting to see, but I, I, I'm going to resist the, the, the temptation to predict. <laughs> I'm a historian. We're not supposed to predict. Dan Malik is with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. I'm sure we'll call you next week, too. Yeah, Take sure. care. Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The interim liberal leader came out yesterday and said that the province was right in ousting his party from power. Is this lip service or is the real change on the way? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Okay, always great to talk to you, Scott. We've talked about this before, uh, you know, when, when uh, both when uh, the Democrats lost and then when the Liberals lost here in Ontario, we've had similar discussions there. Do, did, or do the Liberals realize why they lost the last election, and I refuse to hear the argument that people want change because really people don't want change. They like things staying the same if it is working. So is this really about change or do they really understand what they did wrong here? Uh, Well, I've read a number of things by important liberals after the election, and I'm not convinced they really understand what happened to them. you know, change is what it does. Is it's a blanket for a whole bunch of things that there's uh, underneath of that. But I one of the one uh, one 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 uh, particular uh, analysis I heard from a li- 
from a liberal. I, or no, this is a conservative uh, public policy advisor. And he, he uh, said that this was an election about people deciding, instead of worrying about the future, they're going to worry about the present. So it was a selfish election. That is, they responded positively, so positively to what Doug Ford said, I'm going to put more money in your pockets. And I think people thought we're, they were spending a lot of money on future problems, whether it's climate change or transportation or other things. And people basically just wanted more money in their pocket. They were tired of, you know, say, scrimping and saving for the future. I remember uh, during the election campaign and there was uh, a list of priorities put out by the Liberal Party and what they were going to address. And then there was lots of polling going on about what was important to Ontarians. And it just seems, is it about future and present situations or is it that they were simply on two different pages? It seemed what was important to uh, Ontarians wasn't even an issue for uh, for the liberals, you know, uh, kitchen table issues such as the economy and, and jobs and education and health care and these sorts of things, uh, as opposed to more social issues. Well, I, I think, you know, I, when, I, I know in the polls that you're referring to where it was interesting, as you people said, they didn't like the direction the province was going in or the way the liberals were taking them. But when you took all the things that they were had on offer this year, uh, yeah, people said, oh, I like this, I like this. I, and you had majorities, but when they focused on what these things were going to cost, I think that was an important consideration. And I, I just think that Doug Ford reached people when he just basically said, you know, you need more money. And I, and it also makes sense in one, uh, you know, in one way where uh, we really haven't, in terms of people's wages and salaries, really recovered from the big, uh, uh, you know, recession, the Great Recession, as they call it, of 2008. There's still a lot of people who are, when you take into account inflation, uh, you count that they've got more experience and they can do things better, but they they just don't feel like they're they're making the money that they ought to be making, um, They that they've made any big changes in terms of their bringing money in, and they just feel really pressed. And I think I think I think that was part of it. And they just don't want to have money go to uh, you know government expen- expenditures, even if even though in principle they would say to themselves that's a good thing to do. What about taking the party so far to the left, Henry? I mean, it seems that you know every time Andrea Horvath announced something, that the Liberals would cut them off at the pass, mm-hmm. and and they just kept taking the party farther and farther and farther to the left. Did they ignore the people in the center? Uh, well, I think, I think partially that's it. Certainly there, you know, whenever, uh, once again, when I said, when, pe- when they saw that the government was going to spend money on different things, uh, new things, even if they agreed that those new things were great, I think they felt that, you know, maybe th- it, it's time to rein in that type of spending. Uh, we just don't want to have, hey, you know, more taxes or have something come out of our, our paycheck, um, uh, to pay for those things that, and I think, you know, they 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 probably should have probably stayed more in the middle. Uh, but uh, you know, they were looking what Justin Trudeau had done three years earlier, where he outflanked on the left the uh, NDP. But uh, it didn't didn't certainly didn't work at this point in time. And I just I just think they people were just looking for somebody to the you know to blame for the fact that they don't feel fine. You know, all that you know, successful or happy with their economic situation. 
Uh, is going to the young wing of the party the answer? Is that where they'll find the solutions? Well, I, I think it's always good in a situation like this to have generational tra- change. That it's very, you know, this is a time, I think it's very good to, you know, say, okay, uh, pe- you know, we're, we're going to go to the to the, to people who are, you know, uh, for, you know, from the 20-year-olds up to the 45-year-olds or 50-year-olds at most, and the people above that, well, it's time for them to move on, and we're, we're just going to rejuvenate the, depart- the party, and I think that, that it's important. I think that's one thing that Justin Trudeau did. I mean, he had a lot of candidates. He has lots of ministers and other people who are, who are of, a, of a new generation. And also new faces, you know, relate more to, you know, younger voters, and also they even older voters will feel like, well, they're, they're, they have rejuvenated themselves. They made them feel, you know, they make people feel better about things, even though maybe things aren't all that much better. And I would liken it to we just finished the baseball season yesterday, and even though the Blue Jays were worse than last year and they did not have a good season, there's a lot of people who felt very good about all those rookies they brought up from uh, Buffalo and New Hampshire. And, you know, they were a lot of people said, oh, I feel good. There's all these, you know, look at all these new faces who are coming up, you know, the young people, young guys in their 20s and uh, early 20s, and, you know, mm-hmm. they gives them optimism for the future. And I think a political party in some ways is not too much different than a, uh, than a, than a professional sports team. You, you know, if you renovate it, it looks like you're bringing in new, new people, new energy. Okay, they're not, you know, not compl- you know, they're not at their, at the best they're going to be, but it gives you hope for the future. And I think, uh, I think that that certainly was part of it. The liberals, you know, who lost this time around, a lot of them had been around for 15 or more years. Ed. Shouldn't this be easy for the liberals in the next election, considering the NDP is the opposition and Doug Ford has taken the PCs a little farther right than what Patrick Brown had? Shouldn't this be an easy, shouldn't they be able to mark their territory quite easily here? Well, the first thing is I think they have to have an attractive leader, and I don't know who that's, you know, we're not sure who that's going to be, but I also I think the person has to has to have a some, um, some policies and particularly the message about the policies. I think you know another thing that I think came up is the uh, the message of the liberals was too complicated. They had so many new things they were putting out there, and they were very nuanced messages. And and Doug Ford's message was very simple, and people. I, I think I think maybe too simple, but certainly people prefer simple over complex messages in an election campaign. So I'm not really, I mean, I want to see who the new leader is going to be, how good their communication skills are, and whatever issues they come up with, are they going to be things that they can easily communicate and 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 excite people and i'm i'm i i'm going to wait and see on that so i think it may take a longer time than they think and also i mean the, the acting leader has said uh john fraser that this may take longer than we think to get the you know get the liberal party back up and there are instances where the liberal party never can recover into uh, a major party we've seen that i mean the original case of that was many years ago in britain but in canada we've seen that in manitoba we've seen that in saskatchewan um we've seen that in alberta uh it, it may they may not be able to recover we may our future may be basically one of two major parties the PCs and the NDP mm. and the Liberals as the third place party. That that may be the future. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good. Good talking, Scott. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.